If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Differently from many of the stars on this show, Richard, you're always going to be a a cricket player. It's in your household, it's in your blood. Well, I think so. I was very fortunate, like uh, my four brothers, to grow up in a family cricketing environment. And what I mean by that is uh, my father, Walter, uh, played for New Zealand. He captained New Zealand. In fact, he toured here way back in 1949. And, of course, in those days, they used to travel from New Zealand uh, by ship. It used to take about six weeks. They'd have six uh, months here in England playing games, and they'd have another six weeks uh, on the way back uh, by a ship. Well, so, yeah. so I think with that uh, that background and that upbringing, yes, I think the destiny for uh, virtually all of us was to play cricket. And fortunately, three of us went on to play for New Zealand. And while your dad and your five brothers were playing cricket, what, what was your mum's name? What did she do? Well, Lilia, Lilla uh, was uh, my mother's name. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. mum and dad are no longer with us. Sure. Uh, they uh, passed away in their 90s, so they had a pretty uh, pretty good run. Okay, but, so but, but it, mother, the, mother the DNA was, is good then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah my mother was a, a tremendous uh, supporter of... Um, the boys, particularly in preparing us and making sure that all our cricket whites were nicely washed and uh, cleaned and ironed for our uh, our games on at, at the weekends. Uh, as you say, Barry and uh, I think Dale, Dale, your brother, both played uh, for New Zealand. Um, what what kind of uh, I mean, New Zealand in the in the nineteen fifties um, and sixties. What kind of a country was it was it to grow up in? Well, it's a long time ago now, isn't yeah. it? But a uh, oh, very slow pay, uh, um, way of life uh, in New Zealand. Uh, I mean, we had a very good education uh, in our primary schools, going into secondary schools. In fact, all of us went to Christchurch Boys High School when we were growing up, and naturally uh, most of us went on to play for the first 11 uh, in cricket. And in my case, I also played uh, soccer for the first 11. But we all played uh, sports, and I think the backyard rivalry that we had, I think, was very, very significant in our uh, in our upbringing in the game of cricket because we had a big place and a big section and uh, you know every night uh, after uh, that's dinner, a big area of land in, in, in yeah well, in well English. We, we had pitches in the backyard i was a, gonna say most people play cricket with their brothers yeah. in the backyard but i played it on concrete with, with a plastic ball you had a cricket pitch in your garden the cricket pitch uh, in the backyard with a net and uh, usually dale and myself would uh, be bowling to dad and my older brother uh, barry and that's why dale and myself basically became bowlers because we did all the bowling and we'd get five minute hit at the end before having to go to bed at night time so yeah it's quite uh, interesting how that uh, that role played out um I, 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 I as always with sportsmen I'm very loath to ask you how, how did it go at school academically pretty average uh, we had what we call a school certificate uh, right. which I said in 1967 and uh, 
what you had to do, that's as a 16-year-old, and what you had to do is get a 200 pass mark in your four best subjects. And um, when uh, I'll never forget to this very day when the results came about three months after the exams and uh, Mother presented to me on the silver tray, you know, the envelope with the results. The expectation was there, and uh, I opened it up, and there it was, 195. I'd failed. <laughs> and, <laughs> Almost uh, passed, Richard. Yeah, well, well, you see, that was one of my, my first and greatest learning experiences was the fact that um, maybe I'd expected or assumed as of right that I'd automatically pass, and I thought I'd done the preparation, but clearly I hadn't uh, failed, and I thought that failure is not a nice option. It's embarrassing, it was degrading, it was disappointing, and the lesson learned from that was to work harder, prepare better, and uh, so I sat the examination the following year. I had to do a repeat year on it, set me back a year, obviously, uh, and the system changed a bit, and uh, you had to get a 50% pass mark uh, in your subjects to get the credits, and I sat six subjects, got a pass mark in all six subjects. So lesson learned, move on. I, I say you, you, your life and your family were built around cricket and uh, you're in Christchurch, Lancaster Park, of course. Um, you sold programmes, you were a scoreboard operator. I mean, you really were, unless I've got this wrong, pretty much all about cricket, although I think you played other sports too. Yeah, no, I was engrossed uh, in cricket and simply because Dad played and my older brother Barry, uh, he's sort of 10 years older than me, right. we used to go and, and watch them play. And yes, you're right about Lancaster Park as a youngster selling programmes and collecting bottles uh, and getting tuppence for a refund on the bottle so you could buy an ice cream, that sort of thing, move around the embankment and uh, collect all these bottles and annoy people. But... As time went on, yes, I operated the uh, giant scoreboard with uh, a number of other youngsters while a test match was in progress. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think now. I think it's one of those grounds where there really is a giant scoreboard. Yes, yeah. Well, many, it was an old, old many one. human beings inside yeah, it. Very manual. <laughs> and I often looked out actually uh, from that scoreboard over the playing arena when uh, a test match was in progress at Lancaster Park and uh, watched a few games there. And often thought to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful one day to be out there playing a real test match and uh, I was 16 at the time when I thought that, and it was only five years later that that uh, uh, dream became a reality. You didn't make it uh, quite that far because if you're going to bowl, you're going to need. If you're going to bowl right-handed, you're going to need the fingers on your right hand. You didn't nearly quite make that, did you? Well, it didn't. Uh, and I remember living um, uh, 41 Fennelton Road. It was in Christchurch, and uh, I was talking before about having a big section. And uh, I used to cut the lawns on uh, most occasions. Uh, that was part of my uh, pocket money, if you like. Right. And, and after I'd cut the lawns and uh, thought I'd stop the mower and there, there was a, a bit of grass in, in the, the reel of it on, on the side of it and uh, I thought no, I'd just pull that out but I, I hadn't stopped the mower and it just jumped to the blades jumped back a little into bit. Life. Yeah it oh. did and it, uh, it it cut my finger and I was very fortunate it was only a nick uh, could have lost the nail but it was just under the, the right um, index finger really and that's a very important uh, finger to have if you're bowling right arm uh, seam or spin or whatever and, and being a goalkeeper in soccer to oh, try and rem, catch a oh, ball. Remind us of course about, about your time as a goalkeeper. Well I did at Christchurch Boys High School for three years uh, I played uh, soccer and I was a goalkeeper and uh, really enjoyed that and uh, I was captain of the uh, first 11 in my final year at school and uh, went on to play for Christchurch Rangers and uh, 
which was the South Island uh, sort of uh, Southern League, if you like, uh, just under National League competition. Right. And, and people felt that, uh, you know, I was good enough to go on and uh, uh, for higher honours in time. But sooner or later, you've got to make a choice between one or the other. I think cricket was a better option at the do end of the like day. you still like football? Oh, look, I, I do watch it. And, of course, having spent time at um, at Nottinghamshire for 10 years, it was always Notts Forest. And, well, uh, you were there at the time of Brian Clough, Well, in the 80s, European champions. Uh, it was a pretty special time. Uh, absolutely right. And there was a time, I think, when Nottinghamshire and Nottingham Forest were ca- champions at cricket and football in this country as well. So um, let's talk about then. You uh, you eventually uh, get, you know, you obviously shown promise from a cricketing background. Your debut uh, for uh, Canterbury uh, comes against Auckland in, in 1971 too. Um, and you, circumstances are odd because you replaced Dale, your brother, in the team, didn't you? Well, that's right. Dale uh, himself um, had a bit of a uh, an accident and got. What his, happened to him? Would he got his big toe caught in a lawnmower. I was going to say, there's some lawnmower thing going on there, <laughs> oh, isn't there? Unbelievable. And uh, uh, I was playing in a, uh, a B game for uh, for Canterbury at the time, and I could see that Mother was walking around the boundary quite frantically at the time, uh, just heard the news that Dale had done something wrong. And, of course, Dale couldn't play the remaining three first-class games of that particular season, and uh, I was his replacement. And uh, virtually I had to get pulled out of that particular game I was playing and to report to Lancaster Park the next day and actually open the bowling for Canterbury. Just let me check for health and safety reasons. The the members of the Hadley family now, you get a garden, a professional gardener to come and do your lawns, yeah? We don't have lawns now. Okay, because <laughs> uh, you clearly have no luck with lawn mowers. Oh, terrible. Um, I guess, you know, what we're going to hear over the next two, uh, hour and a half, two hours, is that is that you're I mean, you probably have to do the hard work, but it's just in a story of amazing triumph, a lot of uh, your cricket career. And we got some clue of it. As you said, you had to play three first-class games because your brother was injured. And in the third one, you got a hat-trick. Yes, I did. Uh, in fact, uh, the New Zealand cricket team to go to Australia was about to be announced at that time. And uh, I didn't think I didn't have any chance of making no. that uh, because I'd only played three games. I was, I was picked more on potential and promise than, uh, than performance or anything of that nature. But in those three games, uh, I picked up uh, 10 wickets including a hat-trick in that third game at uh, uh, Trafalgar Park in Nelson and then the uh, the team was announced and there I was I was in it purely coincidental but uh, a great thrill well I think it helped that the hat-trick the first one was the uh, the former sorry the test wicketkeeper Ken Wadsworth who I remember I don't remember Blair Furlong but I think he was a rugby player was he yes he was an all-black rugby player wow, sorry, and, no. and a very handy uh, cricketer <laughs> he played I think uh, first 5-8 uh, for the All Blacks uh, at that time in the early 70s and uh, the third fellow to come out was John Howe who was uh, obviously the number 11 batsman and opening bowler but he went on to uh, be one of the chief coaches of New Zealand cricket uh, at, the, at the Cricket Academy as you say you got your breakthrough in first class cricket because your brother Dale um, was injured um, earlier today I managed to uh, to speak to Dale very briefly about um, playing with you the effect that you had on uh, New Zealand cricket and uh, well here it is oh, I think he showed signs in the back garden really when we used to have our little mini test matches I was always uh, luckily three years older than him so when I was 15 he was 12 I could dominate him but eventually the tide started to turn. So <laughs> um, we, we played a lot of cricket together in first-class teams for Canterbury and um, and then for New Zealand. Uh, he always had the talent, but it was only when he went to English county cricket that he, he learned to refine his skills, and that's when I, I realised that he was very special. And just you mentioned that you played with him for New Zealand. I think I'm right in saying um, that you uh, you opened the bowling with him uh, for New Zealand on occasion. That must have been an extraordinary uh, experience, both a family thing, a national thing, for brothers to open the the attack for their country. 
Yes, it was good fun. I think when you sort of wheel it back a little bit, Richard and I were the bowlers for my father and my oldest brother because they were both batsmen in the backyard in the nets. So we were the net bowlers. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then to sort of t- take that through to, uh, to international cricket, it, it was very exciting for both of us. What effect do you think, looking back now, that uh, Richard had on New Zealand cricket overall, the, the, the things that he achieved, Dale? I think that Richard Hadley, and you may tell me I was right or wrong, was the man who, who showed New Zealanders they could win at cricket at international level. I think there'd been isolated uh, players previous to that, but uh, Richard became so consistent um, that all of a sudden New Zealand started winning test matches. Uh, they had an unbeaten record at home for a number of years, and it was through his efforts and people like Martin Crowe uh, yeah. and, and, and a team of pretty solid performers around them, they, they did really well. But Richard, I think, when he went to county cricket and started getting his 1,000 runs and his 100, 100 wickets in the season and doing things consistently over a long period of time, made people realise that he was extra special. And what's it like having a knight in the family? Oh, he's no no different than just having an ordinary brother called Richard. You're not supposed to call him Sir Richard, no? Not at all. Uh, the one thing our family doesn't do, we don't stand on those sort of things. And I, I know by the time uh, we've done this interview, he will be hearing these words. Have you got a few, uh, few words for your brother? Oh, well, I'm extremely proud of him. Uh, I think uh, we were always very competitive against each other. Uh, when we first started, there was a period of time when Richard was playing for a different club team in Christchurch to me, and we were after each other all the time in those games. Um, but then as time went on and I matured and he matured, uh, I think we hoped that each would do well. And then when I gave up, I was always very keen to see that he was the, the leading player in the in the team. Yeah, that's your brother Dale there. He managed to just about squeeze out that he's proud of you. Yeah, they're very interesting uh, comments. And he's right about the competitive nature between us. Uh, even when we played uh, for Canterbury and New Zealand together, if, uh, if he got two wickets, I wanted three wickets. If he was batting number seven, I was number eight in the batting order and he got 20 runs, I wanted at 40 runs to reverse the batting position so that's the way it was and I felt that we um, complemented each other uh, uh, pretty well and uh, you know that that strong desire really uh, helped our performances excuse me because there's so much to get through I'm going to jump straight forward to uh, in the 72-73 season you're selected for your first test match for New Zealand against Pakistan at the Basin Reserve in Wellington what do you remember about the game? Um, yeah uh, the first ball I bowled I think was a full toss and got hit for four so that wasn't a great start I think I picked up two for 88 off 18 overs scored 46 with the bat and then, got, good and then got dropped for the next two test matches indeed you did <laughs> um, because, because this is the story of the development of New Zealand cricket along around your skill and one or two others as well um, tell me about the New Zealand mentality in those days where I mean in my in my memory and correct me if I'm wrong I was only a kid um, New Zealand was a cricketing backwater and didn't have great expectations of its national team rugby different story yeah rugby did set the standard still does today and uh, cricket whilst it's our uh, top summer game uh, way back in the 70s uh, we had some very fine players uh, no question about that in fact I always felt that the 73 team that came here was one of the best I ever played in uh, for New Zealand but we really didn't know how to win and uh, you know I think our attitude was one based on the fact that we were amateur players as well playing against the hardened professionals here in England and uh, you know the tough Aussies uh, you know very, very competitive and they tended to intimidate us a little bit but I don't think we backed They're ourselves. They're no good now Richard yeah. though you can forget yeah. about that. Now. I, don't, I don't think we backed ourselves enough and we didn't know how to win and sometimes we felt that a drawn uh, test match was as good as a win. As you say, you came here in, ni- in 1973 with an excellent squad of New Zealand players, but not necessarily a great team. You only played one test and England won the three-test series 2-0. Uh, 
I might skip over that because we've got far better results for New Zealand against England coming up, I think it's fair to say, because I want to talk about um, 1974 at Lancaster Park Christchurch, your home ground. We talked about Australian cricket. And of course, it's been the, the, one of the global giants of the game throughout both of our lifetimes. Um, and I think 1974, is that the first time New Zealand beat Australia? Yes, it was. It was a That's an sig- incredible thought, isn't it? It was a significant test match because if we go back to 1946, my father captained uh, a New Zealand side against Bill Brown's Australians and we got badly whipped at, uh, at but they Wellington. But they had a great team then. Well, they, they did, but Bradman didn't come on that particular no. tour. So that was 1946. And between 1946 and 1973-74, there was no test cricket between the two countries. Australia sent their B teams out to New Zealand or we went over to Australia and played their state sides. And so Australia didn't recognise us as such. And I think that hurt us greatly. And whilst we played against some very good Australian B sides with test players or ex-test players and youngsters coming through, like Dennis Lilly, for example, uh, in his early days in the 70s, it was as though it was a snub. And then when 74 came at Christchurch, my home ground, we beat them for the first time. And that's when Glenn Turner got 100 in each innings. I picked up eight wickets in the match. Dale contributed as well. And in those days, we got paid $100, 50 pound, if you like, as our match fee. And when we won that test, we the chairman of selectors came into, or the chairman of New Zealand Cricket came into the dressing room, took us into the shower area and gave us a $100 bonus each. So we thought we were the bee's knees and, and this was what test cricket was all about. Uh, well, uh, it's an amazing thought that uh, $100, 50 quid for beating Australia uh, for the first time. And uh, again, if I might just um, leap forward ever so slightly, uh, I guess um, there was, as your brother talked about that, there was an inconsistency when you started out. Of course, you're a young player, but the real breakthrough performance, if I might say, comes um, against India in 1976 um, at a test match where you took 11 wickets. It's a a game I should never have played in, uh, funnily enough, because my form had not been good uh, prior to uh, that series starting and uh, my confidence was down and Headley Howarth, our spinner, got left out of the side and we went into that match with four seamers, which was very, very unusual. In fact, I bowled number four in the attack in that particular match. So that's how down in confidence and the, and the captain didn't really rate me. And uh, as it turned out, I got four wickets in the first innings, went on to get seven in the second, which was a New Zealand record for an innings performance and for a match performance. And I think that really did trigger uh, my announcement, if you like, at international cricket. I'd been floating around for three or four years with inconsistent, unreliable performances in and out of the side. But from 76 onwards, then I became a regular member of the team through to 1990. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One of the most uh, consistent wicket takers um, that the game has ever produced. Because I think the uh, these shows sometimes go by in a blur of achievements. I think I should explain to the teenagers um, that to this stage you're running in off a very, very, very long run-up. Um, later curtailed because you had an injury, I know. But the bowling style... Um, I don't want to make too many comparisons, but there is there is the McGrath and uh, I think Anderson comparison in terms of accuracy with the ball. Um, was just watching one of your performances earlier on on YouTube, and to me, as well as the, the skill of moving the ball around and all the rest of it, and a bit of pace when you first started, it's the the endless taunting of the poor old batsman just outside the off stump. They've got to play every ball. It must have they must be exhausting. I just wanted to explain to people a basic, and they can look at you on YouTube anytime. Just put Sir Richard Hadley um, with the two with L E E on the end and see the basic style. Again, we talked about the first time Australia um, were beaten by New Zealand. You explained why that wasn't such a huge achievement because you didn't play them very often. All right, I take you, I take you then to 1978 um, and to the Basin Reserve in Wellington, New Zealand, where for the first time um, England are beaten by a New Zealand team, of course, containing yourself as well. There's no such story there. 50 years, and count them, 50 test matches, not beating the home country, and then blammo. It was a long wait, and uh, th- this was particularly special uh, for my father, actually, the fact that uh, he was a player, a captain, uh, a selector, an administrator, and he'd never seen a New Zealand victory uh, against England, and so to fulfil an ambition and dream for him uh, in 1978 was something pretty special. So Geoffrey Boycott became the first England captain to lose to New Zealand. Do you know what? He, ne- he's t- he talks a lot, but he never sees <laughs> to mention that. Yeah, an interesting little side actually is that uh, Jeffrey got some runs uh, in the first innings and got a duck in the second but uh, I sort of nicked his glove and the ball went into his eye and as the game went on the eye blackened somewhat and when the match was over and we'd won it, uh, quite extraordinary because uh, we bowled England out for 64 in the second innings and need to get 137. When you say we, you took 6 for 26. Yeah, yeah that's right and Richard Collins did some damage as well but Geoffrey Boycott, uh, as proud as he was, wore his England cap and his blazer into our dressing room to congratulate us and Stephen Bock uh, was one of our great characters and he thanked 
thanked uh, Jeffrey for his comments and he said, I see your mascara is running. So <laughs> <laughs> to sort of break the tension a little bit. But it was a fantastic time in New Zealand cricket, that. Well, listen, we're going to hear about more fantastic times for New Zealand cricket as your, your efforts and your teammates uh, drive the side ever onwards in the test game. But I think it's a time for us now to look as well. We heard your brother talk about, uh, Dale, about your improvement when you came to play in England, and of course you signed for Nottinghamshire. I don't know what was in your mind at the time, but you probably didn't know it was going to be a decade-long um, trudging up the uh, trudging up to the wickets at Trent Bridge. And what kind of side? You signed in uh, 1978. How important was it to you to come to play in England? Well, it happened by chance. Uh, I happened to be uh, playing at an indoor double wicket competition in Wembley in 1978, and uh, I'd resigned my job to uh, represent New Zealand in this uh, double wicket competition. And it was the time when World Series cricket was about and uh, Clive Rice, uh, the Nottinghamshire player, the South African, uh, had signed for World Series cricket and, and the club sacked him, basically. And so the club was looking for a replacement and uh, Philip Carling, the Not secretary, came down to uh, uh, Wembley from Nottinghamshire by train and, and asked me whether I'd be interested uh, and being uh, a Nottinghamshire player and taking over from Clive. And I said, yeah, well, I'm not doing anything else. And as it turned out, Clive was reinstated and uh, had th- and the club had the benefit of both of us, actually, for that 10-year period. And I think we formed a pretty lethal and devastating combination, either with bat or ball. Well, I mean, let's, let's be honest. It, 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 it turned Nottinghamshire, uh, if I might be very careful what I say here, it turned Nottinghamshire from a second-rate county with a first-rate ground into a first-rate county with a first-rate ground, uh, including two county championships in 1981 and 87. As you're saying, at the heart of that was the captaincy of and the fast bowling partnership that you developed with the great South African all-rounder Clive Rice. I'd like to say Clive joins us now on the phone. Hello, Clive. Hi. I'm delighted to hear uh, your voices on the line. G'day, Clive. How are you going, mate? Well, thanks. You battled. Yeah, excellent. Clive, um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to those days. Uh, yourself, uh, Richard, um, Eddie Hemmings bowling the spin, uh, Kevin Cooper doing a bit of swing. But it was an amazing attack. But truthfully, Mike Hendrick, I think, came along as well. But truthfully, Clive, what people remember is yourself and the young Richard Hadley coming steaming in from either end. You know what? It was just uh, a fantastic combination uh, both Richard and I playing there because both being all-rounders, I could help him with the bowling and he could help me with the batting. So if I say the all-rounders there balance balance aside, now we had two all-rounders in the team balancing it. And it just made it, uh, well, it transformed the whole, the whole team. Clive, I must say that a few weeks ago, my guest here on My Sporting Life was one uh, Chris Broad. Um, the way he tells it, he turned the county round. <laughs> well... When he came from Gloucestershire and uh, he'd sort of been left Gloucester and was going out of county cricket <laughs> and uh, we took him in and the first target that I set him was 10% more runs than he'd ever got in uh, at Gloucestershire and uh, after I'd set him the target he came to me and he said to me how am I going to get those? I said I don't know you come and play in Nottingham so we expect you to play 10% better than you played at uh, Gloucestershire at your best. Well, well, the following day he came around and he said to me, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna, I'll t- I want to have a meeting with you because I'm going to tell you how I'm going to get the runs. And I said, don't tell me, just do it on the field. Well, and within six weeks, because he'd worked out in his head what he needed to do to get the runs, his consistency in batting was fantastic and he was selected for England. What, what about the young Richard Hadley? Tell us about him as a player and as a person. 
very competitive. And uh, what was fantastic about Richard was uh, the standard he set. And, uh, you know, and not only set himself, but demanded from the others. And so as a result, the, all the Nottinghamshire guys and everybody in the team was pulled up by their bootlaces to play at the standard that Richard expected. And uh, that, uh, that also suddenly the guys realized they could play to those standards. And, uh, and what resulted in it is that you had the likes of Broad, uh, Robinson, you had Hemmings, you had French, and you had Randall all playing for England because they'd upped their game to compete at those standards. Listen, Clive, I want to thank you very much indeed for giving us a little insight there into the lethal partnership that you formed and the excellent team that you put together at Nottinghamshire. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. We'll catch you later, Clive. Thanks Pleasure. very much. Thank you, battles. Okay. Cheers. Thank you very much indeed. I mean, you actually um, didn't play much. How can I put this? There were three seasons where you really, really, really made a difference because you were fit the whole time, yeah? 81, 84, 87? Yeah, well, you've got to bear in mind, in 78, New Zealand toured that year, so you only, only had six weeks with the club, uh, and the club was doing well. I think, I think we won five championship games uh, at that time. 1979, there was the World Cup, so I was interrupted again with knots, and in my final year of the three-year contract in 1980, I only played seven first class games because of a chronic uh, ankle injury and uh, that's the start of something uh, really special that happened that um, really changed my career in cricket and that was to forget about bowling off a longer run up but shorten my run up uh, put less strain on the body sharpen and, uh, those skills well exactly and off 15 paces which really was a Sunday league run up that's all you could use in those days um, I got 6 for 12 in my last game at Trent Bridge in that Sunday league match against Lancashire and I remember John Heatley the chairman of Notts uh, County Cricket Club coming into the dressing room because um, I'd announced that I was finishing, you know, I wasn't really doing what I wanted to do in county cricket, uh, not performing or playing as much as I wanted to. And John Heatley says, Richard, uh, we understand the injuries that you've had, but we want you back next year, even if you bowl off two paces. So that was a vote of confidence. And it was the start of the short run, which I even used in test cricket. And then it just launched my career for the final 10 years. As you say, Richard, the unfortunate injury you had actually slows you down somewhat as a bowler, it sharpens up your skills, and you would begin, begin, you've already had a good career, but then you begin to really hit your straps. We talked about those three years, uh, 81, 84, and 87, two of those years, Nottinghamshire won the county title. It's the middle one I'm really interested in, though. Um, I want to talk about the, the double. I mean, it doesn't mean anything more because county cricket has become so bitty and um, so curtailed because of the two divisions. But for years and years and years and years, it was like uh, King Arthur's sword or the Holy Grail was for a person who could come in and score a thousand runs in a season and a hundred take a hundred wickets. Um, and and you did it in 1984. Yeah, well, well, I look back to 81 actually, and I got 117 wickets, uh, I think, in, in 81 and 750 odd runs. And Ken Taylor, our manager, says that Richard, you should never go out the double. And I says, What's the double? He says, That's 100 and, and the thousand. And so I thought, Okay, fair enough. So 82. You know, no good. 83, New Zealand toured that year, so I wasn't going to play the games. And 84 was going to be the year. And uh, 
when you talk about Clive Rice uh, saying to Chris Broad and other members, you know, you've got to play 10% better, and and Rice put targets up on the uh, up on the um, the notice board at the beginning of the season, and uh, I noticed with my particular target, it was 99 wickets and 999 runs. So there's a little bit of motivation there. Sure. So I started to plot and plan this a bit, and I looked at playing 20 games, and. Uh, yeah, there were 24 in the season, but I budgeted on 20. So I looked at five wickets a game and 50 runs a game. I would get there statistically, but of course it's not as simple as that. And I felt I'd always get more wickets at Trent Bridge because it was tended to be bowler-friendly, but clearly less runs if I batted, and I was more likely to get more runs away, away from home, home yeah. and less wickets <laughs> uh, and so on. So the calculation, it, it changed day by day, match by match, and as the budget progressed, uh, the key to the uh, success uh, it was the 210 that I got at Lords uh, against Middlesex because the wicket tally was okay, always behind on the run tally, but that 210 got me ahead of budget, if you like, and the double was completed with games to spare, and that, that was pretty special. You were the first person to achieve that in English category for 19 years. Freddie Tipmus was the one prior right. to uh, myself. And it's only been done once since. Um, a, a, a much less famous cricketer, actually. Do you know who I'm talking about? Franklin Stevenson. Franklin Stevenson. Played for Nottinghamshire. Did he play for Nottinghamshire? <laughs> Is it, my just, replacement, is it yeah. just that pitch at Trent Bridge then? Yeah, I think he had to do something quite extraordinary in his last match. Uh, I don't know exactly. I think he had to get 108 innings and 10 wickets in the match, and he got them to get the double. Well, it, it was a, it was a great achievement, and of course during this time you were the Professional Cricketers Association uh, Player of the Year. I think three times you were the All Rounder of the Year uh, four times. Um, talk to me about the the uh, I guess the breakthrough would have been winning the championship in '81, um, as you said. Uh, and I think I stole your words. Nottinghamshire was a kind of second-class outfit with a very, very great uh, history and a brilliant ground. Tell us about the winning that championship in '81. Yeah, well, prior to my arrival, it was a real featherbed track, and, and batsmen used to get their thousand, eleven hundred runs to get their contracts renewed. And when Clive Rice took over as captain from Mike Smedley, um, we had a different type of pitch to play on. And, and many people have said it was a green top and uh, bowler friendly. Well, okay, it may have been as well, but both teams had to bat and bowl on it. In fact, I remember uh, uh, Leicester actually in that championship year in 81, they arrived at Trent Bridge and they said, well, where's the pitch? I mean, the outfield's green, but where's the pitch? <laughs> were they joking? And, and, no, they were <laughs> joking. And the thing is that they won the toss and actually batted instead of inserting it. And they got bowled out for 90 or whatever it was. But uh, yeah, look, um, you, we won, I think, nine championship games at Trent Bridge, something like that in, in the season. And uh, But every other team ha who had quality bowling attacks when you look at LaRue and Imran uh, playing for Sussex yeah. there, there was Garner and both them you know playing for uh, Somerset for Somerset Wayne Daniel and these guys at Middlesex so they, there were some quality bowlers around that still um uh, could do some damage on those grounds but we tended to play positive cricket result cricket in fact the the instruction was from the TCCB at the time was to produce result wickets well we did that we shaved the ends at one end so that Eddie Hemmings could bowl into, Spain, yeah. into the bare areas to get some turn and Eddie got 90 odd wickets one year that that same that same year and uh, you know in 81 I got well over 100 and other guys contributed but it was a tremendous breakthrough for the club to be able to win a championship in, a, in something like 50 odd years you know 50 might have been 52 years and that breakthrough then led on to other successes because we had some confidence and belief in ourselves to be a, a top rated side I know it's only 30 years ago Richard but it, it, it I say only 30 years 
Uh, the world has changed so much. Winning the county championship was such a big deal. You would have been on the back pages of the newspapers. Uh, I have some regret, I think, actually, that I know the England team is much better than it's been often over the last half a century or so um, because of central contracts and all the rest of it. And uh, I know the game is better probably for the players to play in some ways. You know, they're not being pushed to play every day of every week. But uh, the, the English County Championship, with all due respect to its current players, managers, teams and sponsors, is not what it was. Yeah, well, I think when you go back to our era, it sort of um, signified uh, consistency of performance uh, for the club, for the team and for the players. That's the only way you're going to win a championship and you've got to have a good, solid squad. So if you're missing a player through injury or test duty or whatever, that others can step up uh, when they when they get into the side. And uh, that's definitely what we had at that time and, uh, and the club, I think, was well rewarded for that. Uh, 87 was the other uh, miraculous year for Nottinghamshire. Tell us about that. Yeah, we won the NatWest. Uh, in fact, I always said that uh, I wouldn't leave the club till we won a one-day title and uh, had a benefit year, actually, in 86, which was uh, greatly appreciated. So I was always going to go back in 87 as a thank you. And uh, fortunately, we were good enough to win that NatWest final against Northants, actually, uh, which ended up being a a two-day game because of rain. And I was able to uh, uh, hit the winning runs and be man of the match on that occasion. So the breakthrough again, because we'd been to Lords before in the B&H final, uh, two previous uh, or another previous NatWest, and and didn't quite get across the line against uh, Essex at the time. And it was starting to bug us a bit that you know we're getting so close but we couldn't get across the line so again in 87 to win it was a breakthrough uh, historical and uh, you know really sent the club uh, in a forward direction um you decided to to stop playing as you say, at the end of that season. Why was that? Eighty seven. Uh, my retirement really was a three phase uh, retirement in the sense that county cricket I'd punished myself a, a bit over 10 years I was getting on I was uh, 36 37 at the time uh, felt that um, you know I'd made the contribution that I wanted I'd paid the club back if you like uh, from the first three years where I perhaps didn't contribute as much as they would have liked um, and, and what more could I do in county cricket so if I, by not playing county cricket I could have a little more rest and recovery and still focus on first class cricket in New Zealand and test cricket in New Zealand and the that I went through to 39 years of age as a new ball bowler and still getting wickets uh, gave me a bit of longevity uh, whereas if I kept playing county cricket through to that time uh, I don't think I would have made it. Overall how do you look back at your time in Nottingham? Oh outstanding Uh, I would say that that was one of the greatest experiences that I had during my career and I say that because the first part of my career even to the middle part of it was pretty erratic pretty inconsistent but when I came to England to play county cricket you learn something about your body your preparation and you start finding fine-tuning your skills you get into good habits disciplines and routines and that experience fine-tuned me as a player that benefited not only Notch cricket and my cricket but New Zealand cricket and other teams that I played for and without it I wouldn't have been the player that I turned out to be. And you've gone on to be uh, I suppose you still are an honorary life president of the club does that involve any, doing anything or is it just a, a title no I get all the newsletters <laughs> no that, that's a lovely uh, accolade and anytime I go back to Trent Bridge uh, I'm well received and uh, looked after and I appreciate that um, I've got to ask you a personal question I was looking at as I say looking at as we were researching this lots of old film of you uh, you've always had a fine head of hair still very much a fine head of hair and when did the moustache first appear? Oh, that was on the uh, tour of uh, India-Pakistan in 1976. We get bored on tour 
was like that. Right. I mean, it's hard enough to play uh, cricket in subcontinent conditions, particularly as you, in the, that's your first tour to that part of the world at the time. And so we had a moustache growing competition. Uh, not that mine was any good at that time. It probably isn't today, but it's still there. It, it, it has, has it ever had a, a week off? It's never had a week off. Okay, I just wanted to ask you because, of course, if it comes now, because there's so many pictures of you with your arms outstretched at sort of 10 to 2, appealing to the umpire for yet another LBW, but always that moustache is in the shot. And I just wondered. It's been part of me uh, for for a long, long time. And let me talk to you again, if you you don't mind me asking you, you had 10 years here as a county player. you, you, but you're not one of these people who kind of moved into England, are you? Yeah. No, You've no. You've not become an honorary Brit, have you? No, no, no. I was coming here for six months, basically, or on tours, uh, as I did for you know, however long we, we came to these country, uh, to this country. Uh, but always going back home is something I enjoy. Uh, I mean, I'm a Kiwi, uh, born and bred in Christchurch, New Zealand, and even though we've had a lot of earthquakes and really unsettled uh, in that part of the world, uh, I'll be there as long as I long as I live. I mean, uh, again, when so therefore, as a person who's been here, what's what's your favourite? thing about this country uh, oh, the fact that you can get around the place mm-hmm. is convenient, you know, whether it's by car or bus or train or, or whatever. And uh, I've always enjoyed playing cricket here, always enjoyed coming to England, always get a good reception. Uh, and I've been back here on speaking engagements and been well received and uh, and people have enjoyed having me around. So I think that uh, it's been brilliant. A couple of minutes here just to throw in a few questions from our listeners, many of whom seem to be very excited by your arrival on the show, Richard. Um, the first one is very naughty indeed. Peter Barfoot, thank you very much indeed. Would you have walked if you were in Stuart Broad's position the other day? Well, I think if you nick it to first slip, I think you should go. If you get a little feather on it, you, you might wait for the umpire's decision. Now, that's double standards. All I, all I know is as a, as a bowler, uh, you know, a lot of decisions went against me. Uh, so if I was batting, if I nicked it, I wouldn't go either. So that's just... Uh, the hilarious is. thing is there is no bowler on God's green planet more likely to go apoplectic if he didn't get the decision than one Stuart Broad. Yeah, well, it was a bullish approach, wasn't it? Uh, the fact that he stood there, uh, looked guilty as anything. But that's part of the game. And I think everyone, all the players would say, look, the umpires are there to make the decision. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes in the end, it's wrong. Clark exonerated him, yep. didn't he? You know, that, yep. that, I, don't, I don't have a problem with it. No. OK, this is an equally tricky question for you from Steve Braddock, um, who is a New Zealander. Who was the best New Zealand captain? Howarth? Uh, Jeff Howarth, Martin Crowe or Stephen Fleming? Uh, in my time to play under Jeff Howarth, I'd rate him as the best I played under uh, at international level. Uh, Stephen Fleming statistically is our greatest because uh, he did it for a long time and uh, featured in a lot of uh, test victories. And uh, you know, uh, Stephen, I think, was, uh, was was probably the best in, in New Zealand. Now, in my mind, uh, you played... Cause the role of all-rounder, which you've done, has kind of drifted out of the test game. There are still some, but it tends to be now that the wicketkeeper is counted as the all-rounder. But you played in the golden era for it. And Reggie Bickle um, would like to know off a Twitter question again, um, who was the best all-rounder you've played against? You've got some choice here, actually. Yeah, well, the 70s and 80s was, was a wonderful time to be playing cricket, you know, with uh, the West Indies and Australians being, being top players. When you look at all-rounders, Ian Botham, Kapildev, Imran Khan particularly, and I'd venture to say that had uh, South Africa been playing Test cricket at that time, Clive Rice would be right up there sure. uh, with them all. And of course, Proctor had finished uh, prior to that. Um, the best, um, look, 
they're all great players in their own right. Different but if I, had to, if I had to pick one player, uh, I would have gone for Imran. And, and I say that because of his consistency in the sense that he was a potent strike uh, bowler with the new ball and did particularly well in Australia. Uh, as a batsman, he could bat anywhere in the top four, top six, play any type of innings, whether it was a defensive one or an attacking one. Captain the side, of course, uh, and a very steady fielder. And he, he was a charismatic uh, person as well. And uh, I think he does stand out. I must say as well, when I uh, when I questioned Richard about this uh, a few minutes ago in preparation, I mentioned Jacques Callis, uh, the current uh, South African superstar, who is, of course, statistically the best all-rounder possibly that's ever played the game. Uh, Richard fixed me with a steely glare and said, would you pay to watch him? Richard, um, I'm, we're getting back to your test career now, and um, it's, it's incredible to think there was that spell when the West Indian, the legendary West Indian team, they were winning all before them. Indeed, at one stage, they went from 1981 through to 1994, unbeaten in 14 years in tests. In the middle of that great run, they did lose one series in the middle of that sort of 20-year run. When 1980, um, you beat the West Indies in a series in what's, I think, generally regarded as one of the most acrimonious, te- never mind body line, one of the most acrimonious test series of all time. What are your recollections of that great West Indian team and this victory over them? Well, they had a magnificent side under Clive Lloyd, and when you look at Greenwich and Haynes and Kalacharan, Lawrence Rowe, Clive Lloyd himself, um, Dujon, of course, the Quicks, uh, Holding Garner, Roberts Croft, I mean, it was pretty uh, formidable. Before the Australian team of more recent times, you could argue, was the greatest side yeah, ever yeah. to take the field. Yeah, and uh, we at that time, we're uh, we're an emerging side because uh, we were just starting to get a bit better. We started to have a few test uh, wins. Jeff Howth took over the captaincy. In fact, Jeff, of course, has played a lot of county cricket here for Surrey, and he instilled a little bit of confidence into the side. Professionalism actually. too, I guess. Yeah, and so we started to prepare a bit better and started to back ourselves. And we pinched the one-day international actually at Christchurch against the odds just prior to the first test. Chasing just over 200, we were in all sorts of trouble at, uh, you know, sort of 60 for 5 or whatever it was. And then uh, Warren Lees, Jeremy Coney and myself uh, got us across the line and we won in the last over. And so that was a, a remarkable victory. And then we go to Carisbrook, Dunedin in the south of the South Island of New Zealand and we take the test match there and we only need to score uh, something like 104 in the second innings to win it. You'd think under most circumstances that would be a fairly easy enough target, but this was the West Indies and uh, we got by by one wicket we were nine down and uh, we scampered through for that uh, that run to get us across the line and uh, take the series for the first time a fantastic and famous win in Dunedin I think you deserve to uh, take your bow as well 11 wickets in the match against that West Indian team yeah, I suppose if uh, any bowler's getting sort of uh, 8, 9, 10, 11 wickets in a match, you're going to have a significant in- impact. And uh, yeah, we had a good track to bowl on. And technically, actually, because the West Indies had just come from Australia on the harder, faster, bouncy pitches, well, this was a bit low and slow, and they were very much crease-bound. And I think I picked up seven LBW decisions. New Zealand umpires may be, but they were in good form. You got seven <laughs> LBWs. There were 12 in the game. That, they're both test records, of course. Um, and the game, despite uh, the drama of it, the one-wicket victory, despite being a famous victory for New Zealand, um, the West Indies, or the, the abiding image for me is Michael Holding. Let's be fair, not an aggressive man, really. Michael Holding 
kicking the stumps out of the ground because of the umpire decisions that were being made at the time. Yeah, well, actually, it was John Parker who uh, got a little glove to one that went through to uh, keep a douche on. And, uh, off, off, off of which it was given. And John Parker's always said, look, the umpire couldn't give me out because uh, I did well to get that close to the deliveries. But <laughs> it was a little nick. It was given not out. And Michael, in his frustration, did kick the stumps out of the ground. But overall, the three-match series, it was a very bitter, controversial Why? one. Why? Well, the umpiring decisions, uh, to be fair, the West Indies got the, uh, the rough end of it. Uh, probably 13 decisions went against them in a three-match series, uh, probably two or three against us. Uh, but uh, at the same time, professionalism is part of the game, and um, sadly uh, the West Indies didn't respond. In fact, in fact, they they wanted to walk out of the second test match and uh, and go home, and uh, there was a bit of a, a delay of about 20 minutes after tea on one of the days where they refused to uh, take the field of play. Um, in the end, you won that series 1-0. The West Indies, I say, went on... Um, an unbeaten test match run that took them into the 94-95 season. It was quite extraordinary that they didn't lose a series for over a decade, nearly a decade and a half. So where does that put that New Zealand side? Was that the... You say you were emerging. Did you go on to play in better New Zealand sides? Um, better sides? Look, we had some very good players. I think the influence of uh, uh, people like John Wright, uh, who played county cricket for Derby, myself at Knotts, Martin Crowe uh, went on in the 80s to play for Somerset, So, and Jeff Howard himself. So we're starting to have enough guys with a lot more experience of playing with and against top players in world cricket. And I think this rubbed off on the amateur players. We, we started to come into a semi-professional era at that time. It, we, the 70s was about... Uh, uh, you know, being amateurs, and then we went into that semi-professional era, and certainly in the late '80s through to the '90s to today, it, it's become uh, professional. And those amateur players uh, in the early '80s um, started to listen to what the pros were saying, and uh, it took some time for them to adjust to that environment. But uh, at the end of the day, we started to have some significant victories throughout the '80s. And I, I was fortunate to play in the 70s and 80s where many firsts in New Zealand cricket happened. Oh, you know, and beating teams for the well, first time in our history. You say you're fortunate, I think you were one of the major reasons why those things started well, to Well, but at the same time, yes, I did make a uh, significant contribution. And uh, But the likes of Howarth and the two Crows and Jeremy Coney was one of the best number Perfectly six batsmen in world cricket in, in, in the uh, mid-1980s. And our, our bowling attack was nothing special, but we had good... You know, solid triers and uh, and Lance Cairns and Ewan Chatfield and Martin Sneddon, Danny Morrison came onto the side. Perhaps not household names, but they they did a good job. And Bock and Bracewell, our spinners, uh, may have been in and out of the side, but when they played, they they did their thing. I mean, talk about some of these firsts uh, in '83. Um, uh, New Zealand got their first ever win on English soil um, uh, in a test match. Um, Richard Hadley contri- contributing precisely no wickets for 89. In the Headingley test. Absolutely, yes, yeah, yes. very, very good indeed. Yeah. Although you did take your 200th test at Trent Test Cricket at Trent's Bridge. And the following year in New Zealand, I'm coming on to something here, the following year in New Zealand, 84, you beat England in the series for the first time that England had been beaten. So there's just so many memories here, but I've got to go back to... Just as Michael Holden kicking the stumps out of the ground will live forever with anybody who watched Test cricket in those days, you're also involved in the most famous one-day incident, perhaps in the history of Test cricket. You know what I'm going to say now, don't you? It's England, it's New Zealand <laughs> against Australia. Um, uh, New Zealand are batting. They need six runs to win the one-day international. And the Australian bowler is the third of the Chapel brothers. You'll remind me of his name in a second. Trevor. I'm sure. Trevor. Trevor. Mm. 
a boulderball underarm. Well, can I tell you that it was February 1st, 1981, so at, the not... M- at the MCG at 5.42pm. Yeah. So it's stuck <laughs> in your mind then. Oh, look, we uh, we won't forget, but we, we may forgive. Yes, that was the infamous underarm incident. Um, uh, of course, Six one day... Trunks to get to, to level your total. Yeah, to, draw the to, game. to tie the game. Yeah. To tie the game in a one-day match. And uh, uh, underarm bowling was legal in those days. But, but frowned upon. But, but of course, it contravened, uh, well, today it contravened the... Uh, the spirit of the game. In well, fact, let, it was outlawed straight after you, you that. You say it's it? legal. It is the only example I can remember in a lifetime watching cricket. Yeah, well, I can't remember anything else. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, what was the atmosphere like in the New Zealand uh, dressing room? Um, just uh, bewilderment, really. Who was facing? Who was the Australian? Brian, uh, Brian McKechnie, our uh, batsman, came out. Um, well, I think we needed 12 off the last over. I faced the first the, the, ball and hit it for four, then got given out to a very rough LBW. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> All pitched outside oh, leg. Way outside you know, leg. You, I know, I know. It can't be out. Uh, but, but Richard, the, the fact of the matter was, there was it was weird because Trevor Chappell was by far the, le- the least talented of the three Chappell brothers, and of course, it, one of his brothers was captain. And he told uh, him Greg, to Greg, told him yeah. to bowl the ball under. Yeah, and, and if you look at the TV footage, Rod Marsh, the wicketkeeper, was uh, totally against it. Uh, he's waving his arms around. No, 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 we can't do that. But to be fair, uh, if you can be fair, Greg Chappell was under a lot of stress at the time. Uh, he just wanted this to be the last game, and had it been a tie or a win to us, it meant another match, which he didn't really want to play and uh, he pulled this this rule out or this law out that he could use and uh, look to the, today he would regret what he did and, and he's had to live sure, with it for, for 30 odd years but it's something that happened and uh, the change in the game thereafter in outlawing uh, underarm bowling was the significant result of that particular incident so it actually did some good. I know and of course you say he's had to live with it more importantly of course it's left in position where his brother uh, is best remembered entirely for that illegal action. That's right. Richard, we talked about your development and how you're getting more and more wickets and scoring lots and lots of runs. Let me come to it. There's a moment, I guess, where cricketers are having their moment in the sunshine, I think, in my opinion. Um, that's our own James Anderson has found a groove now that for the last year and a half and hopefully for another couple of years, he's not going to lose. And yours is coming now in the mid-80s. There comes a series here against Australia. In Australia, three-match series against New Zealand where to say that you dominated the series doesn't begin to do justice. I'm just going to say the figures. Three matches, 33 wickets. Never mind the runs you scored, 33 wickets. I mean, I was just saying to you off air there, um, other times when you look back on this thing, I think that's another person. Can you, can you in your mature body look back and say, I did that? Well, I, I do reflect back and think, well, how did that actually happen? And the thing is that we'd never beaten Australia in Australia. And, and when we look at our build-up games prior to the first Test match at the Gabba, um, there was nothing special to indicate um, uh, the, that something like this was actually uh, going to happen. And... Uh, point is that I had good rhythm, um, at, and particularly at the Gabba one where overhead conditions were good, the pitch was a bit frisky, and like any new ball bowler, if you're getting an early wicket, it settles you down, and uh, as it turned out, that happened. The happy hooker, Hildich, caught down at fine leg uh, hooking, and then you he got one. He just couldn't stop himself, could yeah. he? And, and then you want two, then you want three. In fact, on the first day, uh, it was interrupted by rain, so I actually bowled 16 overs on the first day and still fresh. Came back the second day after, after I'd had the first four, and uh, I think, you know... It, 
if you're going to have a performance like that, you've got to have guys who can catch, you know, your keeper, your first, second, third slip gully. Mm-hmm. And in that particular game, we, we held 95% of our catches, whereas previously in New Zealand cricket, our, our catching rate in the 60s, the 70s was about 70%. And so we had to get that, that uh, rating up. And uh, throughout the 80s, we were very high uh, catching uh, uh, rates and so, percentage-wise. So you take an historic nine wickets for New Zealand, running through the card there in Australia, Australia's first innings. You could have got ten, I suppose, if you you caught the other one, didn't you? Well, Over your shoulder, quite a difficult yeah, catch. Well, actually, I had eight, and then oh, yeah. um, Vaughan Brown. Uh, bowled to Jeff Lawson, yes. who tried to sweep him, went up in the air, and I came round from mid on to mid wicket to to take a running catch. And uh, you see it up in the air. Hang on, I've got eight here. If I catch this, <laughs> no, you don't really think that. You see it, you, you catch instinctively it, catch it. You, 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 and you get on with it. So the sequence was broken. Then yes, I, came, I know, Then yeah. I came back uh, to get the the. There was no wicket. temptation in your mind just to let this fall onto my knee no, and fall no, to the no. ground. No, you, you don't think that. We well, haven't got time to think like that. And and when I when I look back, um, you know, you strive for perfection and anything that you do whether you're on the sporting field in the business world and uh, that was the closest that I could get to perfection you know nine in an innings and you catch somebody else and out. six in a second yeah well that was uh, yeah perhaps I should have got more but uh, but for, yeah 15 in the match was pretty good yeah and, a miserable seven in the, in the next match at Sydney um, which Australia won and you won the decider at the Wacker um, to take the series in Australia and 33 wickets for you um, 11 more in the game at the Wacker. I mean, that's the other thing I was going to talk to you about. Um, the, the sheer numbers of wickets, is, of course, is impressive. It's the clumping, the grouping, as they say, in darts. I mean, I gave out a statistic at the top of the show. Just endless groups of five wickets and endless groups of ten wickets in a match. In fact, I think you were telling me earlier... Didn't you t- haven't you taken five wickets in a match in first-class cricket over 100 times? Yeah, 102 times. And I think of all... In five, the, five weeks in innings, yeah, sorry. Yeah, in, in innings. Um, 100 uh, times? Yeah, of, of all the statistics, uh, whether it be test or first-class, that is the one that I'm most proud of because what it tells me is that I was a consistent, reliable performer. I was getting the ball in the right areas enough to interrogate and hopefully intimidate the batsman so they get set up to make a mistake and, and you get them out. And if you're getting that amount of wickets, um, you know, five in an innings, 102 times throughout a career, uh, one, you've had longevity, uh, two, you've had the fitness, three, you've had the skill and ability to do your job, basically, and uh, so I'm pretty pleased with that. Absolutely. You took your three... In fact, it was a bit like England and Australia now. Um, New Zealand went on to play against Australia again the following year after your miraculous series there, the 33 wickets, and at Wellington, uh, in a drawn match, you took your 300th test wicket, which is the benchmark of not just a very good bowler, but a great bowler. Um, quite a good player you got out as well, do you remember? Yeah, Alan Border, LBW, <laughs> for, for not too many. Uh, yeah, look, that's special because uh, 300 wickets was the benchmark. Um, you know, you're starting to put yourself into an elite category and there are only five or six ahead of me at that time when you look at Gibbs, Truman, uh, Lilly, uh, both. And, These are the legends of the uh, game, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, uh, Bob Willis, I think, was ahead of me. So they, these were guys that were ahead of me that I needed to knock off and that sort of helped give me the motivation and I was often uh, motivated by statistics and I was criticised for that but whatever it takes 
to motivate you to, to perform, whatever little tool or mechanism there is for you to lift that performance and dig deeper and just put in a bit of extra effort to get that wicket and the wicket tallies, they keep going up and up and up. You start knocking these guys off and eventually become number one. I and mean, that's pretty special. In fact, of course, you added a remarkable thing. You were the first New Zealanders to get 100 test wickets, 200, 300, 400. So, uh, and that's uh, where it stops. And uh, Danny Vittori, I guess, is catching all those well, up. One yeah, up. he's about 70 uh, behind. Uh, and he may very well go on and um, get more test wickets. We shall see. And, and I, I'd never deny him no. that because I know exactly what he has to go through to, to get to uh, that particular um, uh, reward. We talked a lot about these games against Australia now. Obviously, we're living here in England through an Ashes series or a, a year-long Ashes series against, against Australia. I mean, you've been here for a few weeks. You can't help but notice just how... It's absolutely the centre of the focus in this country. Talk to me about the rivalry between Australia and New Zealand. Is that as intense or is it such a big brother, little brother thing that it could never be quite on the same level as England Australia? Well, let's just clarify something. I mean, the respect between Australia and New Zealand uh, generally is uh, is one of uh, being very mutual because of, of the war years and, and, and the, the Anzacs. Anzac uh, you know, we we, we fought together in the trenches and uh, we competed, or that's not the right word, but we were there in the first and Second World Wars helping each other out Absolutely. Um, you know, for our freedom. On the sporting field, you know, yes, there is respect, but boy, it's competitive. Now, whether it be rugby, cricket, netball, rugby league, you know, we want to beat the, the Australians. We are little brother, if you like. Yes, you are. Um, we're dominated by, uh, by, by big brother and, and a supreme attitude that they do have and whether they rate us or not is is, is irrelevant but uh, we enjoy our uh, our uh, time in the sun where we'll have a victory somewhere on the line all right so military allies um, mm. obviously southern hemisphere neighbors in the recent lions series come the third and deciding match were you pulling for the british and irish lions or australia actually the lions <laughs> funny enough because i thought it was great for rugby uh you know and, and to keep the lions oh, oh you've got a reason for wanting yeah. australia to lose yeah, have you yeah, to keep the lions going because they are something special and they and, hadn't been winning the series have and, they? and yeah. we want them coming out to new zealand in a few years time with this uh, this rating uh and to contest our boys and uh, that'll be a good series in time that is tell. the most slippery answer i've ever heard to a, qu- yeah. a straightforward question it was great for the swoop Wonderful quite, rugby, wasn't it? Absolutely, oh, yeah. absolutely, it, it was. Um, what about uh, as uh, as the, the these tests unfolding in '86, New Zealand in in England? What's your memories of that series? Yeah, look, um, we'd perform well in New Zealand, and but I think the true test for any sports person actually is to perform on foreign soil. So we were starting to do that. Now we did it in Australia in '85. Uh, we came here in '83 and won a test, but lost the series. And so '86, we we won at Trent Bridge, and again I was able to have a a uh, good performance there and we took the series for the first time against England in England and so again you know the sequence of events of the many firsts that we were able to have and for me to be part of it with those that, that uh, played uh, you can't take that away from uh, from people and uh, that's why I'd never change the era that I played in with the era of today even though the financial rewards are, uh, are magnificent you know but, but money didn't buy our successes and um, so that's why I I'll always say, you know, the 70s and 80s was a fantastic time. Well, I'm going to give you a little chance to, to praise one or two of your teammates here because um, my theme throughout this show is that your 
rise to being uh, the you know the highest wicket taker in Test cricket at that time is exactly mirrored and indeed motored, um, engined by. Uh, you uh, driving New Zealand to these new heights first to wins against West Indies against England against Australia then as you say here in 86 winning in England um, but uh, you couldn't have done it alone of course Martin Crowe's name gets brought up but uh, and I think uh, Ian Smith the wicketkeeper will probably uh, take what well, he was certainly won some of the credit um, talk yeah. to me about the team that you yeah, had oh, times. Martin Crowe uh, you know, averaged I think 42 in test cricket which is very high for a New Zealand batsman particularly when you're playing in New Zealand when pitches used to be uneven and difficult to bat on even top World-class players came out to New Zealand and did struggle. Uh, so Martin Crowe, and I think I can state categorically, is probably our finest ever batsman. Uh, classical, classy, had a presence, you know, wonderful technique and uh, played some very important innings for New Zealand. Ian Smith was the best wicketkeeper that I that I bowled to. Uh, and he was there and you, you build a relationship or a rapport between the bowler and keeper as far as line, lengths, batting techniques, where the bat's He's a very funny commentator these yeah. days, isn't he? Very right, Well, he's doing doing rugby and, uh, and cricket. and uh, But Smithy was uh, instrumental. Even if he dropped five or six catches, you know, but that's just one of those things. But he took some blinders as well, so... Uh, I've uh, got a lot to thank him for. Let's talk about 1990 now, Richard. It's an amazing year for you. You get your 400th wicket. You decide to retire. You get another 31 wickets in the course of the year. Um, and, and, and you're knighted. Where should we start? Let's start with your 400th test wicket. You become the first man in history. I mean, it's like the landing on the moon was... Uh, to be fair to you, the landing on the moon was Fred Truman becoming the first one to 300. But then you've put another 100 wickets on top of that. What do you remember about your 400th wicket? Yeah, well, firstly, in 88, I managed to beat Ian Botham's world record in India. Yes, you did. Uh, on the 12th of November, when Aaron Lowell became that victim. So all of a sudden, I'm the number one bowler in world cricket. So what's left for me? Uh, well, if I keep playing for another year or so, there's the 400. So when I talk about statistics as a motivational tool... There's an example. There it was. And um, to be the first to achieve that is my Everest. And, of course, we have a fellow called Sir Edmund Hillary, a wonderful New Zealander, sadly no longer with us. But in 1953, of course, he mm-hmm. conquered uh, Everest. Right. But he didn't get to the top of Everest in one giant step. It was all these little steps. And this is how I related it to right. bowling. It's all these balls that I had to bowl, all these running steps that I had to make uh, to, to get to the top. So Sanjay Mandraka became that particular victim. But the interesting thing was I should never have played in that particular game, the first test at uh, Lancaster Park, which was my home ground against India, because I'd had an Achilles tendon operation and I wasn't fit. And I had no preparation games or anything of that nature. And uh, during my recovery, it took time and... uh, uh, I was invited to come down to the nets to have a bit of a training run, which I did. Uh, it was okay, uh, but still no no practice games, no first-class games or anything of that nature. Willie Watson actually broke a thumb uh, in the nets, and he was one of our uh, front-line bowlers. And then I got a call that night from Don Neely, our uh, chief selector, says, Richard, uh, we've lost a bowler. Uh, do you think you can manage playing in this particular test match? And I said, oh, no problems, Don. Love yeah. to play, thinking, yeah. oh, gosh, here we go. I'm under a bit of pressure here. 
So anyway, uh, I was selected uh, uh, to play in that game. Got three wickets quite quickly. I, I was on 396 test wickets at that time going into that test. Four more, 400. Brilliant. So I had three in the first innings, and then I had to wait to midway through the second innings, probably on the fourth, maybe even the fifth day, uh, to get that extra uh, wicket. And it was Sanjay Mandraka who just got a little bat on it, and it the ball trickled onto the stumps. No pace, anything of that nature. I was pretty knackered, I must admit. And there it was, 400. And the game stopped. And uh, out came um, uh, a gentleman and uh, a couple of young ladies, uh, as in very young, with a, tr- uh, a, a silver tray with 400 roses on it. And Bishan Beatty, the Indian manager, also came onto the um, field at the time. And how special was that to achieve it at Lancaster Park, family? Friends, everybody there to, to witness and share. Bishop Beatty was no bad bowler either oh, himself. Yeah, let's w- be wonderful, fair. wonderful bowler, and uh, I think a lot of people shared and enjoyed that moment. And on reflection, for a New Zealander in the history of the game, when you look at all the tests, all the countries, all the players that have played, a little old New Zealander uh, was on the top of Everest. And, well, uh, it, so it, it was pretty, pretty. Amazing. You're absolutely right, Richard. I'm glad you can enjoy the moment oh, uh, just talking about it because yeah. uh, you know you're a very modest kind of guy, but I. I, I I think I think you need well, to. Well, you're trying to bring things out of me, aren't you? So I am I'm trying to bring things out of you. I am trying to bring things out of you. You could have retired there and then. Yeah. Um, I think you wanted to retire as well. I think yeah. You were, well, that you were, was uh, when I talked before about a three-phase retirement, finishing mm-hmm. County Cricket in '87, finishing in New Zealand, uh, which was that series. In fact, Australia came for a one-off test, so I actually played in that one as well. But then we had the tour of England, and I wasn't sure whether I should do it. In fact, it was Ian Smith that coaxed me into saying, well, Richard, you went there in 73. It's all you really started. You spent time playing county cricket there. Wouldn't it be great if you finished your career in England? In, yeah, in to be fair, though, he's not the one that's got to keep running in and bowling, is he? No, it? that's right. <laughs> he's got to take the catches. <laughs> sure. Um, but, you know, he's right, though, isn't he? England's your second home. You know the wickets here. Yeah. And so I guess when you look at all the wickets you you eventually ended up taking um, one last hurrah was a good thing, was it? Yeah, it was, and uh, I was, I was going to be 39 during the tour. I was 38 uh, prior to the tour, but on the 3rd of July, uh, I was going to be 39. And uh, when you look at fast bowlers in world cricket, you're probably burnt out in your mid-30s. And the fact that I was going into my 18th, 19th season or year as an international cricketer, boy, so it was, um, it was going to be a pretty e- tough Ever have tough an ice bath, Richard? Oh, that, <laughs> I'm... I'm delighted that they weren't around in our day. The only thing I know about ice, you put it in a glass to have a nice uh, cool drink. A long but, one, uh, yeah. I don't think I, I could have uh, survived having to do what players do today in their preparation. Funny enough, um, one of our own fast bowlers, Chris Lewis, did his best to take you out this last few games in England. Yeah, it was a one-dayer, actually, um, at, at the Oval. And uh, it was just probably a half hour before lunch. And... Uh, uh, he was a deceptive bowler. He was uh, a lot quicker th- than he looked, and he actually uh, smashed uh, my uh, my right, um, uh, um, well, just just below the, the like wrist, a tarsal, yeah, the bone, and uh, which meant that I couldn't continue my batting. I didn't come out after lunch uh, to complete my innings, but I could bowl. I could still hold a ball. Yeah, uh, difficult to field and stop a ball. That's why I went down to third man fine leg for the rest of the tour. But uh, the Test series coming up, yeah, I was uh, in a bit of trouble. 
well, actually. I mean, you went on to take more and more wickets. Um, as you say, bat- batting was more of a problem. Uh, ending up with 431 wickets, then the world record. Now, we talked about Alan Border, Sandri Manjeka. You've mentioned some Adnalal, some really, really top players that are going, going through. And you've, ta- you know, you've taken the wickets of all the top players of your era. So... How ironic then that the very last wicket, the world record wicket, 431, should be against, and I hope you won't mind me saying this, possibly the worst person ever to pick up a bat in international cricket. Well, a number 11 batsman. I mean, uh, Devin well, but Malcolm. He was, he was a natural number 12. Yes, uh, Devin Malcolm. He? Well, he walked out to bat carrying a bat only because he knew he had to have one. But, <laughs> but the interesting thing about... His eyesight about wasn't great, yeah, Dave. It, it was a wicket off my last ball. It gave me another uh, five-wicket bag to finish and uh, and average strike rate of five wickets, uh, you know, a test match you know all the stats came together yes. what a wonderful way to finish but the thing about Devon was that um, he, he faced uh, six balls in the uh, in the whole match and I bowled all six to him and got him out twice for a pair of ducks so I, <laughs> so I actually wasted four deliveries yeah that looks but, bad but at the end of the match he came into our dressing room and asked me to sign his run chart which I thought was <laughs> a, a, a wonderful way to finish and remember my career with Devon Melton do you know what and Dev is such a lovely man he's presumably still dining out oh on, on definitely he talks oh, about it hey a when he took on uh, you know with the particular game I'm going to I'm going to kill you guys etc and B I was the last Test wicket you know of Sir Richard Hadley yeah but I should point out that he got me out in my last Test innings he uh, knocked my stumps over so, oh yeah, yeah. He, could, he could he could throw he could oh, fling that he thing was, down he, there he couldn't was he very very handy yeah quick is the word mm-hmm. uh, you, you weren't entirely sure where it was going to go but it, man it was quick when it got there wasn't it <laughs> definitely uh, and in the middle of all this in the middle of broken hand record re- re- runs retirement you become the first and my knowledge only cricketer to be knighted while still playing the game yeah for services to cricket uh, yeah I mean that that happened on the tour I remember being at the Gifford Hotel in Worcester uh, we're obviously playing a, uh, a game there and I got a phone call early evening uh, from Bryce Highland who was the New Zealand High Commissioner and he was saying, um, the New Zealand government and Her Majesty the Queen would like to offer you a knighthood. Will you accept it? And I thought, oh, this is a joke. This is a practical joke. Yeah, this is this the is boys. Smith, yeah. This is the boys on the phone, uh, you know, getting me going, sort of thing. And then as the conversation developed, I sort of realised, now this sounds quite official. And I said, look, I'd love to. Thank you very much. And and Bryce said, well, the condition is, you know, you can't say anything for six weeks. It uh, won't be announced. You've got to keep it quiet. So how do you keep this quiet? I mean, you can mention it to family, but you can't go around telling everybody. Uh, not that you really want to do that anyway. No, no. But uh, it was announced. Uh, in fact, I played the first test knowing that uh, in the, at Trent Bridge, actually. And I knew I was going to be Sir Richard, but it hadn't been announced. So it would have been quite fitting and nice to have walked on to Trent Bridge as Sir Richard. But it was the second test at Lord's when that actually happened. And people didn't really know how to... Um, uh, how to sort of accept or recognise the situation on the scoreboard. Was it uh, Sir Richard, or Sir RJ Hadley, Sir Hadley or whatever it was? So I think there was a bit of pro- so, just few, few protocol just issues. But John Wright, who was our, our captain, uh, allowed me to lead the team onto the field um, on the first morning uh, as Sir Richard, which was a lovely gesture. And uh, the crowd standing ovation uh, it was all very, very special. I think because you're a New Zealander, you don't go to the palace to get uh, dubbed with a sword. Oh, had I been here, here oh. uh, when the investitures were happening yes that could have happened okay. as it tie, uh, as it happened I happened to be in New Zealand and the Governor General Sir Paul Reeves actually um, invested me uh, at um, New Zealand uh, Government House um, in Wellington well, so, uh, it's it was, all very lovely wonderful. and while I'm very wonderful. very impressed clearly your brother Dale is not <laughs> so that you're he's, this, he's Sir Dale you're, you're, he's, you're, he's my brother Richard your very eventful life and we just heard you know 
40 years of it taken up with cricket and breaking every record that was available to you almost. Um, how uh, both ironic and, and also a bit of a pain, really, that within months of retiring, and, and I look, I'm looking at you now in front of me, you're a very, very fit man for your age, I would suggest. Still got forearms like Popeye and all the rest of that. Still got the moustache, of course, as well. But within months of retiring from the game, you uh, discover that you, you might be going to die. Well, actually, it's interesting because on the 9th of July 1990, I bowled my last ball in Test cricket. And uh, a year to the day later, the 9th of July 1991, I was on a surgeon's table having open heart surgery. And I had what was called um, Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, which in simple terms is an irregular heartbeat. Uh, but I'd, I'd collapsed uh, prior to that uh, at a game down at Carisbrook when I was doing some uh, Bank of New Zealand ambassadorial work. We were sponsoring the cricket. And I was feeling unwell in the morning and uh, felt, um, you know, the heart palpitations, racing of the heart, and it just didn't regulate even though I was sitting down and resting. And um, it got to the stage where, uh, you know, I collapsed and was taken to hospital and, uh, you know. I I don't know much about Wolf Parkinson White. Um, I do think it sounds like an England midfield from the 1960s, to be honest. Um, But uh, you can tell me more about the condition in a second. But did you have, I mean, 20 years as a flat-out athlete running into bowl? Did you have no indication? Well, on reflection, I think there were symptoms because sometimes the, the heart does race when you're under stress and under pressure, but, but it relaxes and settles down very quickly. And, this, and if you're fit, yeah. of course, that's a very common phenomenon. Yeah. You're yeah. a maximum of effort. It's, it's just exhaustion. Yeah. It's, it's just natural stress, exertion, that sort of thing. But on this particular occasion uh, down at uh, Dunedin, it did not regulate. And uh, so I remember getting into hospital and they uh, they ripped my tie off, actually. In fact, they cut it off. And I, th- I wasn't happy with that because no, it, uh, it was a lovely tie. Yeah. <laughs> But but I was in um, um, the emergency department, and they said, look, you've got this problem with your heart racing. We can do one of two things, give you an injection, or we can give you the electric shot treatment to stop your heart and, and start again. I said, I'll have the injection, thanks very much. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. <laughs> and, and next minute, I'm waking up with searing chest pain, thinking, oh, what's going on here? And they said, look, you went into cardiac arrest. We had to give you the plates, and... Uh, so there it was. But the point is that I was faced with a choice, uh, drugs for life with side effects, you know, a bit of dizziness, tiredness and that sort of thing, or to have the surgery and correct the problem and uh, get on with life normally. In fact, even today, I'd look, I'd take an aspirin, uh, you know, to keep the blood uh, thin and I'd take a beta block uh, to keep the heart in uh, in uh, condition, uh, which is painless. There's no problems with it whatsoever. So I went through the uh, the operation, which was pretty tough what mentally do they do? and physically. What do they do for the... Sorry, I'll come back to the operation. Mm. What were they trying to achieve with the operation? How can they possibly deal with it, such a condition? Uh, well, with Walker Parkinson White, uh, you have the electrical system uh, in the heart where the heartbeat circuit is. Yeah. Uh, in simple terms, they had a short circuit. Right. And so they had to find that short circuit, cut it so that everything would go around uh, the, the right way. Right. And then open heart surgery, because yep. so many people have it these days and they survive it, um, it sounds like going and getting um, a new cap on your teeth. But this is the one where they cut you open down the yeah, front and yeah. break your ribs out, is yeah, it? I got a I'm, no, I'm no doctor, but I think they yep. break your ribs out outwards from the inside to the to the sides. Yeah, I'm part of the zipper club, so I've, I've got the, uh, the cut. But that, that was very, very challenging mentally, physically, uh, to go through that. And it took probably probably eight months to uh, uh, to feel as though, look, it's history and I can get on and do things that, that I want to do. But it taught me a very valuable lesson, actually, and that is uh, to respect life, to enjoy life, to make the most of it, make decisions now, don't delay, all these sorts of things. And unless you go through an experience like that with your health, uh, it's very easy to procrastinate 
mate and abuse it, as, as a lot of people tend to do, whether it be drugs, alcohol, and so on. Uh, but so, you know, things are good as gold. It's given me an extra, uh, what, 23 years now since uh, that happened, and uh, things are really good. Absolutely. Uh, and what have you, uh, if you could characterize your time um, since then, really, I mean, we're talking about 20, uh, quarter of a century, you say, of extra time. Mm. What have you spent your time doing, Richard? You've been a TV commentator, uh, a pundit. Um, and of course, you've also been the selectors as well. Is, is that been the front of your life, or have you been, what have you been doing to, to, to make yourself a living and all the rest of it? Yeah, well, um, cricket consumed my life for a, a long period. In fact, 36 years of international cricket, either as a player, selector, manager, media. Um, um, you know, the selecting part. I was um, chairman of selectors for three years and selection manager, effectively the same role for another five years. Uh, so it was cricket, cricket, cricket. But I decided in 2008 that uh, I would just sort of walk away from cricket a bit, still take an interest in watching it, but not participating in any specific role. Why did you decide that? Just, you just well, enough? It, it's enough? Yeah, it's as though, uh, if there's such a word, I was cricketed out. Um, you know, there was a lot of media attention, particularly with selection issues. and There have been some problems pressure. in New Zealand cricket as well, having some growing pains and players had gone, would you call it a strike what had happened? Oh, yes, yes, during my time. Time. I think 2003 yeah. they went on strike for about uh, eight weeks where we as selectors could not communicate with the players, the coaches or anything of that nature. In fact, I recall Martin Snedden, who was the um, CEO of New Zealand Cricket at the time, he said, OK, the players are on strike, Richard. Uh, you're chairman of selectors. You've got to get a team together because India are coming. And so we started going, visiting the grounds around New Zealand, looking at sort of A-team players, B-team players. And we were writing down names that we didn't know how to spell. There were names there we'd never even heard of. Here we are trying to put a test team down. But sanity prevailed at the end of the day. The player dispute was over, and then we can get on uh, with business. Um, and since, since then, in the, in, the, in the preceding five years, you say you've taken a, uh, still a, an active interest in the game. And, of course, I presume you get a round of applause every time you turn up on a cricket ground. Somebody may even shake your hand and present you with a bottle of something. Who knows? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is, though, I mean, in Christchurch, because of the earthquakes and other things, I it, we don't get test cricket or one-day cricket there. I haven't seen a test match in New Zealand or been at a ground to watch a test match anywhere in New Zealand for five years or a one-day international for at least three years. Uh, but I'm probably just about ready to start looking at one or two other opportunities. Now, whether it's uh, being an administrator, going on the board, or, or, or doing something else, maybe there's a there's an avenue down there which I, I could pursue. I mean, you, I'm glad you um, talked to me about about 35 years consumed, cricketed mm. out, if you like. Um, you've seen an awful lot of changes from your time as a player through to being administrator and all the rest of it. Where do you think we are today in the game? I mean, uh, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase that, which was a question, the form of a a, uh, a statement. I worry about cricket these days. Um, it's fantastic for the very top players. You're going to uh, to India to earn a fortune in the IPL. And it seems to me that everything else is, falls off of that now. And we're in danger of losing some of our better competitions, our national cohesion, things like that. Where, where do you see the game at the moment, Richard? Well, you're talking to a purist here. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm a traditionalist and value um, everything that, that of what cricket's all about. Uh, but the game's evolving. And uh, we've seen that with the 50-over game and more recently, of course, T20 cricket. Uh, 
to me, test cricket is the ultimate. It always will be because, as it says, test cricket is a test. It's a test of your skill, your fitness, your mental, your tactical, in changing conditions, whether on the pitch, state of play, weather, or whatever. It's adapting to all those situations. That is what the real contest of the game is all about. And uh, other forms of the game, whether it be 50 over or T20 cricket, doesn't give you that one-on-one contest against the great opponent in the in the opposition because of the nature of the game. Now, I accept that 50 50 over cricket and the World Cups are a very important part of it. I accept that T20 cricket is important as far as uh, promoting the game, um, exciting games, revenue, getting families together, but it's not cricket. It is not real cricket, never will be real cricket. The real cricket is the five-day game, and I think when you look at the Ashes series and the crowds coming back to the game, um, that's what people really enjoy. Richard, I I, I hear that, and and for what it's worth, I agree with you. But, and there is a but, it's easy to get into that mindset in England when you see the ground thronging from half eight in the morning, people queuing up around Trent Bridge to get in. Um, I'm, uh, and uh, when you see the Melbourne test between England and Australia with 100,000 people on Boxing Morning crammed into the ground. But when I look at test cricket in other parts of the world, and, and you can it tell about New Zealand, there is not very many people on those yeah. grounds. Oh, it's absolutely a problem. It's a great challenge, I think, for the sport to um, you know to keep that hype, uh, hype going. But you see, in New Zealand, we have the problem that... Um, a good itinerary for us in New Zealand is to have three test matches, three one-dayers, three 2020 games. Unfortunately, when we go overseas these days, it may be a two-test series or a one-off test with all the one-dayers through. And so we're clearly disadvantaged as a playing nation because we're not as popular or attractive as uh, as other teams around the world. So it's an issue for us. But I think the other interesting thing is the use of technology in the game. I was just about to ask about DRS. Yeah, well, whether it's DRS, and the, and the, but, whatever, but, but technology, technology yes. in general, in my view, is, is quite simple that if technology can conclusively 100% conclusively determine the right decision then I think it needs to be used on the basis there's so much at stake today and it can just change the course of the match through a bad decision uh, the DRS I'm not so sure that's uh, the right thing at the moment it might, might need to be tweaked up a bit I don't, I don't actually like uh, the players having the right uh, to question the umpire's decision and have the right of review. I'd rather leave it in the hands of the umpires that if they are not uh, convinced that they've made the right decision or there's an area of dispute that they call for the replays to get the right decision, let, not the players. Let me let me assume that it's, uh, let, let's let's play a fantasy game where um, the review system or technology in whatever way you want to call it uh, was in during your career. Of course, you would have had many many more runs because you'd never been out. I understand yeah, I'd, that. I'd, I'd have a thousand okay. wickets. You, I'm asking you seriously. <laughs> do you think you've had more or less wickets if, if, if the more, reviews? Definitely more. Because of the LBWs yes. in particular. The umpires are really loath well, they to lift that finger up, aren't they? Yeah, well, the umpires were uh, were tougher in the 70s and 80s because anything on the front foot, generally they wouldn't give an LBW decision. Crease pound back foot, yes, today. And now we're seeing they're hitting halfway exactly. up middle stump, aren't they? That's right. It's, it's very different. And let me ask you finally about, um, we talked about some of the great players from your era. Who are your favourite players around today? Oh, I, I, I always follow the quickies. I mean, I like Dale Stain. I mean, he's been a wonderful performer statistically. Great controller, Right up there. Space, yeah. He's got a presence too. Uh, Anderson, I think, is, is a wonderful bowler. I think the skills that he's developed over the last few years consistently he reminds me a little bit of myself. Abs- absolutely, because Jimmy wasn't always this great paradigm of accuracy that we yeah, see now, yeah, was he? But the thing is that we didn't know anything about reverse swing in the 70s and 80s. Uh, if it happened, the ball happened to move in, it was a good old-fashioned in-swinger, but the way that they uh, do it these days and look after the ball and reverse it is a, is a wonderful skill. And the fact, too, that they can bowl it out of the back 
of the hand. Again, something that we couldn't or didn't do in our day. So I think the players of today, whether it be batsmen or bowlers, are far more skillful than the players of the 70s and 80s. And yet we had magnificent players in the 80s, but conventional type uh, yes. type cricketers, if there is a point of difference. Oh, I saw Ricky Ponting yesterday attempting a flip over his own head. He would never have done mm. that 19 years ago. Yeah, Listen, exactly. thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, we're down to the last wicket stand now. You're listening to me, Danny Kelly, and the great Sir Richard Hadley. Richard, I've got a little bunch of um, sort of uh, roundup questions here that I like to ask. The first one, I think I can just let me just cross it out. I guess when it says best friend in cricket, if you're if you've opened the uh, the uh, the bowling uh, for, for your country with your brother, that's probably uh, unless I have that wrong. Uh, Dale, definitely a, a friend, but but there's so many. I mean, Clive Rice is a great friend. As we uh, heard from the two you were talking, you know, yes. I mean, John Wright is a great friend. I mean, you don't get friendly with everybody that you play no. with or against. They're acquaintances. In fact, when I come to England and uh, do various events or appear here, there and everywhere, there's always other cricketers that you played with or against, plus the new new era. And it's great to catch up with them and have a chat, a meal or a wine or something of that nature, even a game of golf. But uh, there are some very close friends uh, that uh, I okay. admire greatly. Here's one that's just occurred to me if you could swap all your caps and achievements um, with the black caps for similar number of caps and achievements with the all blacks jersey would you have done that no because only do you talk about reality and <laughs> reality for me of course was uh, was cricket you can dream about other things but uh, it's always cricket I mean do you follow the All Blacks in the way that most oh, New absolutely. do yes yes uh, great follower of the All Blacks as I am with the Warriors rugby league team would yeah. you believe they're a little no, bit inconsistent no. but I uh, love my league and uh, and rugby okay um, and I guess um, from all the vast number of things that we've heard about tried to reflect in the last two hours what, what would you say in a cricketing sense you're most proud of? Uh, look, I think all the statistics uh, and records that I was able to achieve it will take care of themselves. The question is, what am I most proud of? And that is representing New Zealand, being selected uh, and to stay in the team for a long period of time and to make a contribution along with the others that I played with and be part of those significant firsts that New Zealand cricket, um, you know, to be part of that, you can't take it away and no one else can ever repeat those particular firsts. And here you are, quarter of a century past your heart trouble into a, a a very happy second marriage I understand it um, lauded for everything you've achieved and, and still in pretty good nick um, what does the future hold let's hope let's hope for another quarter of a century shall we what does the future hold yeah, uh, well, for, for Richard Hadley well I've got a lovely wife and I've got two boys one's uh, 32 the other one's 28 and uh, you know, they're doing absolutely fine what's there for me maybe something else in cricket still to be determined at the moment I do a bit of promotion on PR work I'm patron of the Indian New Zealand Business Council so I spend a bit of time in India opening doors for those New Zealand companies looking to uh, establish their service or product uh, into that part of the world. Uh, I'm also patron of uh, my own sports trust, the Sir Richard Hadley Sports Trust, and we've been doing that for 20-odd years now. And uh, we try to uh, support young uh, sports people who are in hardship or need of financial assistance and help them make their way and fulfil their dreams. So I've got enough on my plate. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 